You're listening to the William Allen Smith Podcast, where I talk about books, thoughts, and roads, the journeys of life. Demand for my opinions is at an all-time low, and for good reason. So thank you for listening. Hi there, welcome to the very first series, the very first episode, I guess, uh, on my new podcast, calling it Books, Thoughts, and Roads. That is a generic enough title that it means I can really talk about whatever I want. But I think the general idea is going to be taking a book that I'm reading or I've read that felt significant to me and just uh, spending some time, uh, a series of episodes, unpacking that book, talking about the author's thoughts, whatever thoughts I have about that. And then the roads part is how does that fit into our journey, the unfolding nature of our lives and how we're developing and growing in faith as, as human beings, trying to become healthier, more mature. And so that's what we're going to do. The very first book that we're going to tackle is by the author David Bentley Hart. And it's his rather recent book, That All Shall Be Saved. I think it just came out last year. I read it uh, when it came out and uh, was pretty blown away by it. Now, the the title gives away the topic to some degree, That All Shall Be Saved, is his argument against a couple of things and then definitely for something. He's arguing for universal salvation, the idea that what God, he's a Christian, so what God did in Christ, the scope of that is for everyone, and ultimately, everyone will be saved. Now, what he's arguing against then, obviously, first of all, would be the idea of what's known theologically as eternal conscious torment, that there's a lake of fire, that there's a, that there's a place called hell where the unbelievers are sent to uh, be separate from God and to endure torment for eternity. So he's saying that's that's not Christian, that's not biblical, uh, it doesn't even make sense. And so he makes a very strong argument against that. He's also, and it's not a main focus of the book, but he also, in arguing for universal salvation, is making an argument against uh, what's called conditional immortality. It's the idea of annihilationism, that unbelievers, they, are, they don't spend eternity in the lake of fire. It's just that their immortality is conditional upon believing. And therefore, uh, in the judgment, they are thrown into the fire and burned up. They cease to exist, annihilationism. Conditional immortality is, is the idea there. So he's making an argument against both of those things, and he is making definitely an argument for universal salvation. It is a wonderful book. Uh, David Bentley Hart, who is he? He's a theologian. He's a philosopher. He is currently a fellow at the University of Notre Dame. I think what that means is that they pay him money to think about things and to study them and to pursue whatever his academic goals are. It's, it's, a, it's a scholarship for scholars where he studies for a living and, and writes and publishes and speaks and that kind of thing. So I, I'm pretty sure that he does more than that, but it at least in, encompasses those things. He's currently at the University of Notre Dame. He's previously been at other universities. Duke comes to mind. He was there as a, as a teacher as well. And so David Bentley Hart, you may not have heard of him. You may have read all of his books. I don't know. But I encourage you to uh, get this book and give it a read. His, his style. 
He is a theologian. Uh, he uses some big words. He is tackling big ideas. So this is not a book for the faint of heart, but I'm a firm believer that just if you struggle with a book like this, just slow down and keep your Google handy and look stuff up. Uh, I often have to do that. It's worth it. It's worth the mental stretching, the growing, the exercise of it. The effort of it is, is well worthwhile. He is uh, a little funny to me, but his humor is because he is he can come across as a little arrogant. Uh, he is has such a strong argument and is is so sure in his assumptions and his logic that his tone can insinuate and imply and sometimes even overtly say that pretty much his argument is irrefutable. He, he, he comes across as winning the argument before anyone else even has the opportunity to participate in. He, he strikes me as the kind of guy that would win any argument, even if he was wrong. I don't, I don't think he's wrong in this argument, but he has that tone. And so there's a bit of an, an acerbic quality to it, almost a... Uh, uh, a little pompous. And it's not too bad. It's just uh, the tone that easily creeps in when you're right and you know it. And when the arguments that you are opposing seem ridiculous, it's difficult to uh, to not have that sense of almost contempt creep into it. And I don't say that in any way to uh, be negative towards him. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done that. We speak that way about opposing political parties. We speak that way about all kinds of people who don't agree with us. And that just makes David Bentley Hart human. And it actually gives his writing some energy. And as far as academic flavored stuff goes, it, it, it gives it an appeal. And so, but I, I, I wouldn't want you to read that book and be shocked by it. It's there, it's present. I, I would encourage you to not be offended by it, but rather just to recognize the, the humanity that we all share that's expressed in that. So that's the book. David Bentley Hart is the author that all shall be saved. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle. You can probably buy it at some Christian bookstores, but online is going to be the, the better option. And that's going to be the series. Now let's take just a few minutes and talk about my background related to this subject. David Bentley Hart actually begins by fully acknowledging that he's always been a universalist, that as a child, he intuitively rejected the idea of hell, eternal conscious torment, a God who would punish people forever, sort of the really good God who happens to operate in eternal dungeon where people are tortured forever just didn't seem to make sense to him from the very beginning. I, I wish I could make such a claim. Uh, I actually grew up in the evangelical Christian South, I could even say the, the charismatic evangelical Christian South before that. And well, I was Southern Baptist as a little child and then charismatic method of all things, and then went to a Pentecostal Bible college. So that's kind of my journey. And in all those settings, I believed in hell. I believed in a eternal conscious torment. I believed that unbelievers would be cast into hell and they would spend eternity with no possibility of uh, redemption. And I, I believe that because I was taught to believe it. And I was taught that I had to believe it, that it was just something that was in the Bible and therefore Christians have to believe. I remember as a young man even uh, attending 
and serving at some events that were evangelistic in nature, but they were dramatic presentations of the judgment and people going to hell. And then uh, after displaying enough fear in the room, they would have an altar call and an opportunity for decision that if you didn't want to spend eternity being tortured, now is your chance to come forward and and receive Christ. And lots of people uh, did respond. It was it was very effective. Uh, I remember in high school, actually, being introduced to the, as a piece of literature, the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he, in verbal form, basically exercised that exact same technique, that dramatically describing the, the wrath of God poured out on sinners for all eternity in hell and how we're all dangling over the fires like as if suspended just by a spider's thread, that there's this, this idea that salvation is provided in order to save us from the Savior, that God's going to kill somebody. He's going to torture somebody. He's going to exact his pound of flesh from somebody. And if you don't want it to be you, then you need to accept him. And so built into that is this assumption of you better love me or else. And love doesn't work like that. And with the little reflection, that begins to fall apart. And it is difficult to really think on that or sustain that, but Christians have. And most, uh, let me just say this, most of the evangelicals I know who believe in hell, believe in it, and and David Bentley Hart makes this point very clearly, that that they believe in hell because they believe they have to believe in hell. And it is a requirement that they believe it, and therefore they've never questioned it. They've never, let me say it this way, they've never read the Bible and the relevant scriptures about the subject through any other lens except the assumption that they as believers are required to believe in hell. That's the gospel, the good news that they were presented with was that Jesus is going to save them from going to hell. And so it feels very scary and like a very slippery slope that if, if God didn't send Jesus to save us from himself and from the punishment he's going to inflict on us if we don't receive his gift, then what did he save us from? And, and so it's going to require us to completely reframe the gospel message if we abandon fear being the primary motivator f- for why we should respond. If if we're not operating within a framework of punishment and retributive justice, then what is the framework? We actually have to uh, not just replace one doctrine with another, we have to go back and rethink everything. So that's my own journey. Uh, I, a number of years ago, uh, not because of David Bentley Hart, uh, it was actually a different journey for me. He just gave some arguments and some logic that was helpful on a journey that I was already on. But uh, this is not a new journey for me or even for the body of Christ. I, I remember in Bible college, uh, we had a speaker come the, the very first week I was there named Carlton Pearson. If you're not familiar with him, think Tulsa, Oklahoma, African-American, uh, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal, incredible uh, speaker, communicator, very uh, scholarly in his approach, although I don't know that he had a ton of scholarly formal education, just a real smart, brilliant guy. And I remember really liking him. Well, a number of years later, it became public. He came out 
as being a universalist, uh, denying uh, a hell, denying eternal conscious torment. And I myself thought, Carlton, man, have you gone off the deep end? Have you lost your mind? You're, 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 you're going into heresy. You're going to lose everything. And I think the evangelical community uh, responded very strongly against him. I remember stories about other well-known evangelical leaders calling him and pleading with him to, uh, to not go down this road. But, but he stuck with his uh, his convictions about it and has stuck with it to this day. I, I believe he, he, at least for a while, lost almost everything as a result of that. So there wasn't any, there's very little to gain by by sticking with this this path, but he did. I remember just a few years ago, Rob Bell's book came out. Uh, it's called Love Wins. And wow, the controversy at the idea that in the end, love wins, that it's not about punishment, that it's not about retributive justice. And, and I, I may be putting my, my words or other people's words, projecting them onto the book, but that was the gist of it. It was very, very controversial. Uh, even more recently, one of the guys I really like is Brad Jersak, and his book, uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, I believe is the, is the title of the book, is an incredible book on, on universalism. But for me, it goes back even before that. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a hero of mine. I've read most of his works, I believe. And uh, he's got a book called The Great Divorce. It's a fiction. It's a fantasy. But it's it's theological in its nature. It's the great divorce between heaven and hell. And he, at least in a fantastic way, portrays hell as real and eternal, but you can leave there whenever you want. And that that really got me thinking about, are the assumptions I've been handed real? Are they true? Are they solid? Can they be questioned? Because though I didn't wind up concluding the same things that C.S. Lewis concluded, at least seemingly in that book, he at least opened up the door, I think in my maybe early adulthood, to the idea that the assumptions I have about this can be questioned, and it's okay. And so his book was very influential. And then he includes in that book, there's a, a, a tour guide of heaven, uh, and you'll have to read the book to see what I mean, but it ends up being George MacDonald, who was a Scottish uh, pastor, minister, writer that lived, uh, I think, back in the 1800s. And he was a hero of C.S. Lewis's. And George MacDonald is a universalist. And so when I discovered that, I thought, huh, so that's not some new thing that's been around for a while. And, and as David Bentley Hart points out so well, many of the early church fathers were universalists. There's a reason Augustine was so against universalism was because it was the popular view of the day. Augustine argued against it because it needed to be argued against from his vantage point. Uh, you can read guys like Origen and Gregory of, uh, of Nyssa and, and all these patristics, these early church fathers that were all universal, not all of them, but many of them were universalists. So it's not some new doctrine. And that's my journey is I, I've come to a place uh, in recent years where I am no longer comfortable with the idea of God having a dungeon where God punishes people forever with no possibility of restoration, reconciliation. And it's not just that I'm uncomfortable with that. Paul himself writes that God wishes, wills that 
all should be saved and that none should perish. David Bentley Hart's translation of that verse actually accentuates the active nature of that verb, that it's not a passive preference on God's part, that it's actually an active verb, that God intends that none should perish. That, that Jesus Christ came to uh, be the Savior of the whole world, that he's a propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, the cosmos to himself, that in the end, everything, things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth are all going to be summed up and included in Christ, that in the end, as Rob Bell says, love wins. And I find that to be not just my preference, uh, according to Paul, that's also God's preference, uh, or we could say it even stronger, his intention. And what it does is it is this view allows me to not screen out a ton of scriptures. This is so common. You know, there's some, some polarization theologically where you pick one side or the other, and whichever side you pick, you gravitate towards all those scriptures and ignore the others. And, and we've all done that. If, if you've been in this for any amount of time, you've seen it done, you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Uh, there are a ton of scriptures about God saving everyone, everyone. And I've just explained them away or filtered them out, or ignored them entirely, or done in interpretive gymnastics to kind of wedge them into the belief system that I was handed, the tradition that I received. And, and because we don't like to have our traditions challenged. I used to be a pastor. I'm not anymore. But as a pastor, I, re I remember when my very conservative evangelical congregation began to get wind of how progressive I might be and how liberal I might be to use their language uh, that, that for instance, I didn't anymore believe in hell. People began to leave the church over that. People do not like having their assumptions challenged. And when I say people, I'm including myself. I don't like having my assumptions challenged either. Uh, and so I get it. But this is the journey I'm on. David Bentley Hart's book has been very, very helpful at giving me language and a, and a philosophical and biblical framework within which to go, ah, okay, this is going to be all right. What if the gospel really is good news for everyone? And that's helpful for me because I'm part of the everyone and I need the good news. So I'm looking forward to this series. I hope you'll join me along the way. Uh, the way he's organized the book is in several meditations. So uh, we'll start with meditation one, and uh, maybe we'll get that done in one episode. It may take a little longer than that, but we'll just work through the book, and uh, we'll talk about what he has to say, and then I'll kind of have a discussion with him virtually. I mean, he won't be there, but I'll be interacting with his ideas. And then we'll just talk about how that affects our journey, how it affects the road that we're on. And I hope that it's helpful for you. I don't assume for a minute that you'll agree with everything he said or with everything I said, but I do hope that it will provoke you to think deeper about who God is. Because our picture of God really matters. What we assume to be true about God is how we'll convey him to the, to the world. And just think of, think of this for a minute. If God is not 
going to torture people forever who don't believe in him. If he's not going to do that, then can you think of a worse thing to say about him to the world? A worse way to represent him to the world, if it's not true. And so this is worth exploring. This is worth thinking through, especially in light of God wills that none should perish. If that's his preference, it should at least be connected to a willingness on our part to think it through. I hope you'll join me for the series. I hope you'll enjoy it. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.